Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Old Testament reading comes from Proverbs 16, 1 through 9. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The Lord detests all of the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. Better a little righteousness with than better a little with righteousness than much with than much gain with injustice. In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And our New Testament reading is from James four thirteen through seventeen. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, and carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. The word, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was a mighty fun reading, I must say. Thank you both. Will you pray with me, please? Father, I suspect that my friends here before me resonate, as I do, with your instruction to the Israelites when you warned them that the counsel that they have listened to has left them exhausted. Lord, we have listened to all manner of inner counselors. They chatter to us and they tell us exhausting things, self-promoting things, self-defending things, autobiographical things. They tell us that we should be afraid. We've been discipled all week by cable news and Facebook Beyonce and the Avid brothers. We've been discipled in a thousand ways, and some of the counsel's good, and some of it has left us exhausted. So we're asking, would you let the counsel of your holy writ console us and move us and make us happy in our Lord Jesus, who can carry the weight of these tremendous lives you've entrusted to us. Come, Holy Spirit, we invite you now. Amen. Well, so this passage that was just so ably read 
gives us yet another example of James being what we, if we're being honest with ourselves, might say is a little too severe. Heavens to Betsy, James. Now to you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into this city or that city and we'll spend a year there and we'll gather some investors and we'll sell our wares and we'll turn a profit. That's what it makes the economy go. And James not only says, don't say that, he says that boasting and bragging is evil. Like, James, work with me here. How is that evil? What is so evil about saying that next week we're going to Asia? There's expanding, emerging markets there. There are opportunities that we can exploit. We have goods to sell. I have investors to back me. What's so wrong with that? James has reminded me a number of times with his severity and his seriousness that seems a little overwrought to us. Like what I heard Joe Novenson say at General Assembly, that sometimes you hear him, and he said, I used to hear people talking about sin and things, and I think, I think they're being a little serious. I think they need to just go outside and shoot some baskets. Maybe James needs to spend a little time playing Fortnite. Maybe have a cold Coca-Cola. Chillax with a little vaping or something, just to take the edge off because he's a little too revved up, isn't he? Well, or he's spot on and we've become numb. We've become, as G.K. Chesterton said, the paralytics. Don't Don't boast that you no longer blush at things that made your grandparents blush. It may just be that you've become the paralytic and that they're fully alive. I think something like that is going on here more merely than James being anti-planning. And so it'll be my burden to help you understand that. Here's what I think James is up to. I think James says this about boasting about tomorrow and gives us speech to handle the way we ought to think about our plans for tomorrow. Not because he's uh, so concerned with us having some kind of superstitious speech or that he's anti-planning, but because he's concerned about the what we put our full weight into. He doesn't want us leaning on spider webs to support us. That's what Job's friends tell him that the wicked always do. They put their trust, they lean on spider's webs. I don't recommend any of you here, if you see a spider web and you want to rest, to put your whole weight on one because it will not hold. And so James is getting at something that seems pretty mild. What are your plans? It seems like a little harmless garden snake. Kathy called me last night while I was preparing for his sermon. She said, Eric, there's a 
I think a copperhead in the yard. So I came home. I went 100 miles an hour on Lula Lake Road or something close to it. Didn't hit, hit or kill anyone. I put on my muck boots just for sex appeal. <laughs> Kathy found a shovel for me. And we came up on this snake. Now, I think I probably would have been kind of frustrated if it was just like a little worm or just like a little garter snake and she had called me home. But it was a copperhead. Sucker was... (laughs) And I felt like I had a Christian duty. So did she. To crush the head of the serpent. And so in this joint effort, I had a rake and we... I took out all the hostilities of the week on the removal of the head of this copperhead snake. It's like I was doing squats with 500 pounds on there. That's how hard I was hitting this thing to make sure he was good and severed. We think... That some of the ways that we act are just a little garter snake. And James says, no, no, they're a vicious viper. They're a copperhead. They're a rattlesnake. There's something that's poison in there. And you need to get the head off of it now. It's not nothing. And so what is it? What is it that he's up to? doesn't want us leaning on spider heads. So here, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, We'll go to this or that city, spend a year here, carry on business, make money. Why? You don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James is not pro-superstition. He's not pro-superstitious speech. You know, Michael Scott has said, I'm not superstitious. Well, I may be a little stitious. But James is not superstitious. He's not imagining that what you need to do, instead of saying, hey, here's my plan, here's what we're doing, you just need to tack on to the every time you're about to say something that's going to happen. Yeah, we're going on vacation in two weeks, if the Lord wills it. Hey, i got to take my car into the shop, if the Lord wills it. That He's asking you, kind of like a little rabbit's foot that you can rub, a little talisman that can serve you with good luck and keep God off your back. That isn't what his intent is here. James knows something profound. He's spoken the whole book about how important our language is. He says that the tongue... This tiny little thing that Corby spoke on two weeks ago so marvelously, the tongue is like a little spark that can cause a massive Colorado... This is why we didn't want to take the thing off. I was going to take it off later. That the tongue is like a little spark that can cause a raging, devastating national forest fire throughout Colorado. He says the tongue, it's this little tiny thing that can alter the course of one's whole life, like a little bridle in a horse's mouth, or like a rudder for a gigantic ship. 
This little tiny thing can move gigantic things. James has this notion that your speech has an enormous amount to do with your perception of reality. That's why he wants you to say, if the Lord wills it, we'll do this or that. Because James knows something. He knows a lot of things. But one of the things he knows, and this is who he's addressing, he knows that people like us, the people who would be inclined to say, today or tomorrow we'll go into this city, spend a year, the people who make plans. You know who doesn't make plans? Poor people. Do you realize this? The materially disadvantaged, economically poor, have a whole different system of expectation about what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and the year and years after that. Because they have learned that they don't have much agency in the world. They don't have the ability to alter very much. If you have been this way, you know you're trying to survive. You're hoping to make it through the end of the day, through the end of the week. You're not making a plan for 40 years from now. But rich people, middle class people, upper middle class people, we think of the future as ours to shape and to bend. We think of the future as ours, where we can enact our aspirations, where we can, where we can make everything malleable to our own intention. And because we have those options, and because we have those expectations, it can lead us to think of ourselves as godlike. It can lead us to think of ourselves as in charge of way more than we are. So when James says, don't just say, here's my plan. Say, if the Lord wills it, here's my plan. What he's trying to get you to do is introduce to your language, introduce to your speech, reality-shaping concepts like God. He's trying to introduce you through your own mouth to this idea that the future is not merely yours to bend. The future will be determined by a will that is greater than yours. The way you talk about a thing, you realize this has so much to do with how you start to see it. If a pastor, since that's what I am, kind of, says, yeah, at my church, we, uh, I've got the people doing this. If you speak of it as my church, well, that sets the stage for you thinking in a certain kind of way. If you speak of your church as the church I am privileged to serve, it categorically switches everything in your head even. When you start to talk like that, you start to think of the church differently. You have a different posture towards it. This isn't my church. You're not my church. I own exactly zero people here. And I'm nobody's mom, as Steve Brown taught me to say. I am a servant of this church. That's my privilege. That's my calling. And if I can say it like that, I can think of it that way. And James is saying, if you can start to say, if the Lord wills it, if it pleases the Lord, if you can introduce that into your planning, you will recognize without arrogance and without haughtiness and without introducing your sense of responsibility and your responsibility disorders into the future. You'll recognize that you are leaning on the will of him who brings everything into conformity with the purposes of his will. 
The Bible really believes that. The future is not ours to make entirely, although we have a role in it through our work and our prayers, through our actions and our asking. But though we make plans in our heart, as you heard in Proverbs, the Lord directs our steps. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he will. All the plans of the Lord succeed. Our own confession, which I learned and you've gotten to hear me, you've never heard this one. It asks the question, what are the decrees of God? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, this 17th century document. What are the decrees of God? And as I learned it, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The decrees of God are his eternal counsel according to the, uh, are the plans of God according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. If you start to think of the future, what happens to you, what you get to participate in as you being carried along, you're part of a stream of God's action in the world. Some of it is not what God intends morally. He has made his decrees And his precepts, no. He doesn't want evil to happen, but even the evil he can convert ultimately to his purposes. He permits things. He guides things. He directs things. And so the Bible says he's working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And so James wants your speech to reflect reality. He wants your speech to be something that you use regularly to remind yourself, oh yes, I am not a solitary actor on the future I'm a participant in God's future. He's not pro-superstition in his speech. He wants you to introduce God and reality into your speech. And he's also not anti-planning. He says, what you should say is, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or we will do that. As one commentator says, the we will is James's recognition that planning is good. So at least a half of you in here can breathe a massive sigh of relief because I know that for a lot of people in here, the most joyful part of your existence is planning out your future. It's more joyful than watching the World Cup game that you're missing right now. Now, to me, planning is kind of like someone sticking me in a coffin and burying me six feet under a ground. I take no joy in it. It feels like a straitjacket, but I know many people for whom planning is just nothing but Christmas every day. To be able to map out the future, to be able to anticipate all the things that they want, to be able to lay out, ugh, just have day planners and day timers around their walls. Well, James isn't anti-planning. He's just anti the omission of a glaring feature in our planning. Namely, the one who holds the future. The arrogance 
of those who say this is what we're going to do is that they're not considering the one who holds the future. They're not considering the one who has given them the business. They're not considering the one who holds up their life. That's called arrogance. That's why he thinks it's evil. God can't abide arrogance because the arrogant man is in competition with God. The arrogant woman is in a fight with God. God is a rival, not someone to submit to. God is a threat, not a father. And so James would say, I don't want you to think you don't need to plan, but you need to consult the one who holds the future when you make your plans. You need to recognize your plans may need to deviate according to his will. That makes you open, for instance, to interruption. Bonhoeffer says, God will always be sending interruptions around our paths. Most of you who like to plan, and even I have to plan, find frequently that the universe and all the people around us and God himself are almost never in cahoots with our plans. That's what's so aggravating. The person in front of us while we're driving almost never has the same plan as we do to have been able to leave much later than we needed to get to where we need to go as fast as we wish. They don't care about our plans. You hold your plans a little more loosely if you think that God's in control of them, that he's guiding you, that he's directing you. He's the one who counsels you. You might find yourself... If you started to think God holds the future, he works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for me to do. Not all works, which means you don't have to be a nervous wreck when you don't finish your whole list every day. But you might start consulting him. Oh, Lord. What business do you want me to do? How may we do our business? What ideas do you have for us in our business? See, you involve him. You involve the sovereign Lord who's given you your daily work at the law office, at the bank, at your home, at the hospital, at the school. And you involve him in your planning. That's what James is wanting because the humble person would always submit to the one who has the greater power and the prerogative to bring about what's happening. And that's what James wants us to do. A few years ago, I asked a friend who who owns a lot of... He's got a sort of a retailing, franchising business. He owns a bunch of them. He's done pretty well. And I said, hey, how did you get into this? I never would have thought of this. Which is something I could say about every business probably. (laughs) And he said, well, I don't know. Every now and again, a blind pig finds an acorn. I was like, well, that's kind of an answer. A blind pig finds an acorn every now and again. I love that. That's... You've heard that saying. It was a humble saying. And it leads me to ask, yeah, that's a very Christian way of thinking about it. A blind pig every now and again finds an acorn, but it isn't by luck. It's because God directs blind pigs. And James would urge you to see yourself as a blind pig searching out the future with God. Oh, Lord, lead me to the acorns. Oh, it will squash your worry. It will diminish how tight a grip you hold on your plans. And it will lead you with some humility into the future that you do not control, but that you get to have a part in. So he's not anti-planning. He just wants you not to omit God from your planning. And he's not pro-superstitious speech. 
He's wanting you to shape your reality and bring God into your line of vision when you talk. And the reason for these things, both of these, is because he's ultimately concerned with your confidence. What are you trusting in? When he says this like he does, this rough thing, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life, you are a mist that appears a little while and then vanishes As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. He's accusing them of pretentiousness. He's accusing them of arrogance. In other words, he's saying, you are being big talkers. You're acting like you control the universe, like you're a titan of existence. And yet, you can't even sustain your life for the next second. What's your life? If God decides that you should not live anymore, guess what will happen? You will not live anymore. He's just picking up on all the wisdom literature of the Hebrews. This whole idea your life is like that morning dew that you run through as a kid and your socks and shoes get all soppy wet. And by midday, that dew is gone. And James says, yeah, that's about like your life. And some of you realize how fast time goes. Because you've lived it. You lived a lot of it. So he's not trying to scare you. He's trying to reorient you. To say, don't be cocky about the future. Because you don't control your life. God does. And if you think you control your life, you know what you're going to do? You're going to boast. And you're going to brag. And you're going to try to make a big case for yourself. You're going to self-promote. You're going to tell everybody how great your plans are and what you're doing. Because you think that if you can build up this edifice of magnificence for everybody else, that that's going to do something. But my friend, he says, it's leaning on spider webs. James would want us to know, as I have discovered multiple occasions, that not all chairs are fit to bear magnificent weight. That's what's at the heart of boasting, you understand. Not all chairs are fit to hold magnificent weight. See, when you boast, you're asking your boast. It's a, it's a confidence thing. When you brag about something, you're leaning on that brag. This is what I trust in. This is what I want people to know about me. This is what I want people to think about me. And if they'll think this about me, then I'll be something. Then I'll be impervious to danger. If I can have enough money or if I can have enough esteem or enough followers on Instagram or I can convince my community that I'm something I'm not, then finally, finally, I'll be something. But that's a chair that ain't going to hold you. You might be able to tell that I weigh more than a few pounds. And it has happened to me on various occasions that I've sat in a seat with people in polite company. I've sat in a camping chair from Dick's, you know, one of them $17 ones that everyone has at ball fields. And I've sat there with my, with my dear bride and, and with my family members and watched my bohonkus slowly seep through the cloth that refused to hold me any longer. The threads unraveling and me getting stuck. But at least it's a dignified position. Your bottom on the ground, your feet up, you're unable to get out, and you can't push yourself up because you'll break it all the more. 
I can't sit in them chairs. And them chairs right there, they're a joke. That's a spiderweb chair. I sat in one of them chairs right, right here around a small group meeting. I was teaching. It was alluring and captivating the audience. I was leaning forward on one of these chairs. I knew I shouldn't be sitting on it. I knew it because not all chairs are fit to hold magnificent weight. And I was leaning on the front of this chair, and I was talking, and I was talking, and then suddenly something happened. But it was all so fast. All I know is that I created this divot in a concrete floor. Again, my bohonk is smashing. Forces of gravity being rude and harsh. The chair, by some kind of Newtonian second law of physics, shot backwards about 15 feet. And my... My dear parishioners, we'll call them my now. Not a one of them said, are you okay? They just laughed. And the people upstairs, they just laughed. Their imagination took over and there was nothing but hilarity. The fat man who squashed a seat. And that seat looked like it had been in a beer brawl afterwards. Mangled, contorted, bolts broken almost instantaneous disintegration. All chairs are not fit to bear magnificent weight. And when you start leaning on things that you can boast in and you start having confidence merely in your own intellect or your own ability to earn or your own family or the school that you went to, there's all kinds of things we boast in. And it's like sitting in a chair that isn't going to hold. It's like leaning on a spider web that's not going to hold your weight. And James says that's evil because what you're doing is You're contorting and distorting God's good order of things where he made us to lean on him. That's where life is. That's the right order of things. If you don't lean on him, if you become a boaster and a braggart, you know what you'll do? You'll become a a steamroller that destroys everybody in front of you in the way of making your plans or making your own name. You'll destroy the earth. To make a name for yourself. James says that's the evil. What you want to do is you want to say, I am submissive to the Lord's intentions. It's his pleasures that I'm after. God says the same thing to the Israelites. A similar kind of thing. He says, hey, um, do Messi's boots brag about That PK that they scored? There's my soccer reference. That's as far as it goes. Does Jose Altuve's glove boast about the amazing catch it made in the infield? Does Yo-Yo Ma's cello brag about the melodious sounds that it generates? Does Van Gogh's brush chatter like a big man on campus about the paintings that it has rendered. He says, that's what Assyria has done. I've used them as an instrument, and they're like an axe that has raised themselves up over the one who wields it and boasts. That's what it's like when people do stuff. It's like inanimate objects boasting that they did something instead of recognizing it's the soccer player who kicks the ball, and it's the infielder who fields, and it's the cello player who makes the sound so lovely, and the artist who renders the painting. And James wants you to have the relief 
and the solidity and the comfort of knowing that you're not leaning on a spider web, that you're not seated in a chair with confidence in yourself that can't hold. He wants you to be seated in a sturdy wood slatted chair named Jesus Christ who can hold the magnificent weight of your life. All of it. Life and death and sin and sorrow and worry and wonkiness. All that you've done wrong and all that you'll do well. That magnificence of bearing his image, he can hold it. And James wants you to be in the right order of things. He isn't pro-superstitious speech. He wants you to invite God and speak in a way that invites reality to yourself. He's not anti-planning. He wants you to invite the one who holds the future into your future plans. And he wants you to have a confidence that can hold the weight of your life. The closing illustration is this. I read this week or listened to the death of Ivan Ilyich, which is a magnificent story. Ivan Ilyich was this man who had done everything right. He went to the right university. He went to law school. He got the right appointments. He had steadily made his way up in the world. He'd gotten nicer houses, although he discovered, as we might, that the house he got was just one room too short, that the increase in rubles that he got each month were just a few hundred rubles too short of what he needed each time. But he... He had a life that was impeccable, that followed all the standards of the day, that looked like he was increasing and advancing in the world, and he spent so much time making sure his drawing room and the appointments in all his rooms had the right antiques, so it looked like they had the right amount of money, and they had all the right people come over to their house for socializing, and he loved more than anything, he loved to play cards. It was his greatest joy in life. Until he is stricken with sickness, with a pain that makes one hour from another indeterminate. It's just misery. It would never stop. He got to the point where he's groaning and crying out and just devastated with a chronic shouting pain. And in that pain, he starts to hear a whisper inside, is it possible? Because he wonders, why? Why all this pain? Is it possible that I've lived my entire life wrong? He wonders. Is it possible? But he quickly dismisses the thought. No, 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 no. There's no way. I've done everything perfectly right. I've followed all the rules of our civil society. There's no way I'm living like everybody else. I haven't done anything wrong. So he dismisses it out of hand. There's no way that could be the issue. And so he keeps being in pain. And it isn't until one day he takes the sacrament. He takes Christ into himself, the Lord's Supper. His wife, like a talisman, says, won't you have the priest? You go, what else are we going to do? He hasn't talked about God once in the whole story. He hasn't thought about God that we know of. He's not mentioned God once in the whole story. He takes the sacrament. He suddenly feels better, and he feels later a pain in his chest. And he can suddenly, after he's taken Christ into himself, and he's made a confession, he suddenly is able to face the idea, maybe I have actually lived my entire life wrong. In falsity, deception. I've pursued the wrong things. I've lived for trivia. 
And what would be a devastating thought, one that he could not have faced, he suddenly had the sense that though I've lived my life wrong, it can be rectified. Well, he's dying, but it can be rectified. And that's what James is up to here. When he says, that's evil to boast and brag. He's saying it to us who might realize, hopefully not just wait till the end of your life, but right now today, maybe I've been living all wrong. Do you boast and brag? I do. Ander, just a week or two ago, said, hey, Dad, how come you tell everybody that you ran nine miles the other day? You're like, "Uh, well, because I want to reassure them that even though I'm a large fellow, I can do the strenuous cardiovascular work. I want everybody to know. I'm tough, I'm strong, even though I'm gargantuan. And so when I come home from running or something, he's like, hey, Dad, how many miles did you run? Because he's pointing out the ridiculousness of it. Who cares? Well, I care because I'm fond of self-promotion sometimes. If you'll think something really good of me, I somehow keep thinking that's going to be something more than just like oil on a hot manifold that's going to not just dissipate. It's going to somehow heal me, but it doesn't. It never works. So it's good for him to call it out. And James is calling it out because it can be rectified. When our boasts are misplaced and our confidence is misplaced and our speech is misplaced and our planning doesn't take God into account and we're really rather hoping that he doesn't mess up our plans, we don't want him involved in them. We can say, oh, I've been all wrong. I've pursued all the wrong things. I've loved all the wrong things. And James says, here's what you can do. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves. Come near to him and he'll come near to you. Turn your laughter into gloom. Turn your pursuit of trivia into your pursuit of the one who can hold the magnificent weight of your life. So Ivan Ilyich, at the end of his life, though he's realized I've lived my life, I've squandered it to make a show. At the end of his life, he can't even ask his wife who he's detesting and his family that he detests. He can't even ask them to forgive him because he can't get the words out. But this lovely line, him who understood, him who needed to understand would understand. And so he dies with death defanged, with the grace of God welcoming him in, though he's lived all the wrong ways. James wants that to be a a normal, everyday experience of you humbling yourself when you realize you've boasted wrong, when you've omitted God from your life and your plans, and leaning on him and saying, I need grace, gifts from you, sustenance from you, cleansing from you. Don't let your planning, don't let your magnificent life omit God. Omit his son, Jesus Christ, who is the one alone who can hold the magnificent weight of that life. Amen.